A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast contains explicit language. Hey there, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And this listener is your favorite show about political losers, Candidate Confessional. And so today we bring you the story of Jack Kingston. Now, I know what you're asking right now. Who exactly is Jack Kingston? And why the hell do we subscribe to this podcast? Please, God, give us Sarah Palin. Well, actually, I think Sarah Palin's pretty hard get. I mean, she's probably, at this point, auditioning for a rap record. <laughs> yes. Or writing a rap song. That or writing poetry, something else. Well, listen, just give us a minute of your time. I'll explain who Jack Kingston is. He was a Republican congressman from the state of Georgia who, in 2014, lost his race for the open Senate seat. He actually lost in the Republican primary, to be exact. Yeah, that makes him a bit more of a loser. So why did we interview someone who didn't even make the general election? Well, there's a reason. Because Jack Kingston, in my estimation at least, was fundamentally different than most members of Congress. Well, what set Kingston apart was that he actually liked to engage audiences outside the conservative echo chamber. Exactly. He went on shows like Bill Maher and Stephen Colbert, back during Colbert's Comedy Central days, shows that you would not normally expect to see a Republican member of Congress go on. He was pretty brave. In fact, he was actually the first member of Congress profiled in Colbert's famous Better Know a District segment. Georgia on my mind is my favorite Jamie Foxx song. What's yours? Well, I think that's Ray Charles, but I also like the song. I'm pretty sure it's Jamie Foxx. Pretty sure. pretty sure it's Ray Charles. Sorry. And this guy, whether you agree with him or not, was someone with whom it seemed like you could have a reasonable, level-headed conversation. But that was kind of his problem, right? So voters in a Republican primary in Georgia, especially during the 2014 election, they didn't want a candidate with whom they could have a level-headed conversation. And for Kingston, who hadn't lost an election since the seventh grade, this proved to be a big problem. My opponent happened to be the cousin of, of a governor, and so he had instant name ID. Why don't you just change your last name? I was thinking about it. I was going to run as Ronald Reagan. I... Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. I'm Congressman Jack Kingston from the 1st District of Georgia. That's the southeast corner of Georgia, the entire coast. A lot of military, a lot of agriculture, a lot of tourism. And we're talking to you because you ran for Senate. Yes. Okay. And you lost. 
Yes. Okay. Oh, rub it in. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, we'll we'll start with that. No, that's fine. So let's I'm just <laughs> let's gotta start, keep it. Gotta keep it light, right? Uh, let's start from the beginning. Um, what was the moment that you knew you wanted to run for Senate? Well, I'd say this: that as a House member. And, and, you know, peeling off the layers of the onion, this is an idealistic town. I know that sounds insane to say, but if you really talk to people, whether they're journalists, whether they're lobbyists, whether they're government bureaucrats, or whether they're the most extreme or the, uh, or the most moderate of a Democrat or a Republican, they did come here to change the world. Sure. And I have found that a huge commonality that, you know, the we don't get any credit for publicly, but the reality is everybody came here to fight for a cause. And so, you know, you get in Congress and then people start saying, well, are you going to run for president? And I think that probably happens to 435 members. You know, When was the first time someone asked you if you're going to run for president? Probably seventh grade. I mean, if, you know, <laughs> if you have the disease, people just recognize it and feed the monster. I, I, I think that what um, – but, but I had – two or three very decent political opportunities to run for the Senate in the past, opportunities that were unique, where the deck would have been cleared for my nomination, would have had great support. What were those? Um, Paul Coverdell um, died in office very tragically, and the Republican Party was looking for a candidate. Um, and uh, then another occasion when uh, Max Cleland was up for Re-election and Bush was at the height of his popularity and power. This is 2002. Yes, and Saxby Chambliss and I um, were thrown into the same district, and Saxby and I were friends, and we remain friends, and we just said, we came here as friends. We're not going to run against each other. One of us needs to run for Senate. And uh, How'd you decide? Because I had four small children at home, okay. and that was always... Uh, there's such a balance between personal life and political life and family. So uh, it's not like you flipped a coin. We, we basically, well, I tell you, we went out to dinner and we were both kind of forty nine percent. And I said, "Saxby, I just don't know how I can do it with with my children." And now that I've run statewide, I realize that was the right thing to do as a father. Politically, it was not a good decision. <laughs> um, and then I had another opportunity to run for governor when the incumbent governor, Roy Barnes, had just overplayed his hand, made a lot of mistakes, and was very, very vulnerable. Um, but there again, uh, you can be a father, but you can't be a daddy. Uh, and I wanted to be a daddy. I wanted to be home. I wanted my kids climbing on my back and throwing baseballs with me. Gotcha. And I was, so you've waited all this time, and finally <clears throat> 2012 comes around and you say, all right, I'm ready to do it. Yes, except for you kind of have to make the decision on a statewide race. Georgia is now the eighth largest state in the country, nearly 10 million people, um, multi-million dollars uh, in terms of campaigns. And so you have to make up your mind that if something happens, you're ready to go next route. And what this happened – in this case, Saxby Chambliss had had – the incumbent had had a fundraiser as recently as 10 days before – he announced his retirement. He was planning to run for re-election. And then, you know, right at not the 11th hour, but, you know, at some point around the way, he just said no. And I was actually in Israel. I, I remember this vividly because it was my last moment of freedom. I was leading a CODEL. We had met with Netanyahu. We had been out in the missile defense uh, facilities, and um, we were going to have a, a dinner that night. But I went back to the hotel 
did you know very tired from jet lag took about a 30 minute nap i woke up and my um text messages were just blowing up saxby damless just announced um he's not running are you in but just one question saxby didn't give you any heads up none none this is your friend who you sat down with (laughs) Um, and decided he should run and he couldn't pay it back you know um some candidates get that and uh i i I wish i would have had it but then again you know, the decision to be to run was maybe something that I'd made a year earlier. Should the opportunity arise, I wanted to squeeze the trigger. So you're in Israel. You get these text messages. What's the first conversation you have with your advisors when you've decided, I'm going to do this? And what do they tell you about the possibilities of the race? Well, I had never used a consultant. I wrote my own ads. And I so I had to kind of go out and and create a political machine. I had no idea about the world of consultants or what they charged or and it was hard for me to turn over my life to somebody who wasn't necessarily a Georgian and maybe a gun for hire. It, as good as they are. Um however, so you know, I had to go through that process which was an an extra o- obstacle. But uh basically, you say, okay, you know, what is your story? What is your message? Can you raise the money? And a lot of people said about me Ah, uh, Kingston's lazy. He won't work. He can't raise money. Now, you know, I don't know where they got that from because <laughs> I'd been working 70 hours a week as a member of Congress doing all kinds of things. But the criticism, if you ever want to find out what's wrong with you and you can't afford a psychiatrist, uh, run for office because everybody will come up and say, here, let me tell you what's wrong with you. And You know, I mean, you don't, you're not assertive enough. You're too mild. No, you're too assertive. Um, you don't dress well. Uh, don't like the way you talk. You need to rephrase that last sentence. Um, and so, I mean, you get all kinds of advice. Yeah, that, but in politics, you pay people to be – I mean, you're paying consultants to let you know what your weaknesses yes, are, Yes, and right? you get it for free as well. <laughs> so – but being in a full-fledged race – and I'll say this very soberly because I've been through it. It's like having a death in the family. Mm. Unless you have been there, you do not really know when you're expressing sympathy to a family that's grieving. And unless you've been there, you don't know what it's like under the roof of a candidate who's in this slugfest 15 hours a day for months at a time. And that that's what's unique about it. My wife and I, particularly me, but um, – we went a year – we went 18 months with three days off, one Christmas, one Easter, and one Sunday when I just said I've had enough. But aside from that, every single day there were at least three or four hours at the minimum of paperwork, thank you notes, and phone calls. What was the situation where you, you took the – you said, I'm the hell with it. What was the situation uh, well, around that on that Sunday? Um, let me let me get back to one two thing yeah. though. My two biggest fears. My mother just turned ninety, and I was scared something would happen to her along the way. I didn't, you know, I'm a, I'm a mama's boy. Like going out to Colorado to see my mother. I couldn't see as much of her, but she's also a political fanatic. She actually moved uh, to Atlanta for a great per, uh, percentage of the time, and that was good. The second thing I was fearful of is running really hard and putting in all that time. Losing and wanting to do it again, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so and that on that the jury's still out. But in terms of that Sunday, you know, there just comes a time when you're exhausted. Like people say, well, how do you sleep? Because you are worried about a lot of things. The, the reality is, you you hit the bed so exhausted. Just I, I slept very well because there just wasn't anything left at the end of the days when I got home. 
So what was the situation where you just said screw it? Just it you was just, just tired. Just had to. Just said I said I'm not going to do anything. And <laughs> what did you do on that day off? Nothing. I, 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 I remember wandering around my backyard in Savannah, Georgia, and looking at the marsh and wondering what it would be like to be on a boat. <laughs> that, that was about it. So the race to replace Senator Saxby Chambliss in 2014 was, well, how do we put this? It was a shit show for the Republicans. There were five major candidates, and among them was David Perdue, a prominent businessman, the cousin of the state's former governor, Sonny Perdue, and a man with an impeccably strong jawline, which, as you know, is critical for getting elected. So you had a crowded field, obviously, um, and it got more crowded after you entered. When you entered, I think there were two declared candidates and then became many more. What were the back-channel conversations like with your opponents? I mean, obviously, someone must have been asking someone, you know, help me out here or maybe attack someone there. But with that many people in the race, how did it change the dynamic? Well, as we all went through the same process, the same audition, um, we, we would go to the same breakfasts. Sometimes I'd have it one week, they'd have it the next week. Sometimes we were all there at once. And, and you have to be cordial because particularly in a primary, you know, your ultimate goal is to keep the seat for the Republican or the Democrat Party. So, so you know, you can't you don't really want to slice each other, other's throats, but on the other hand, you sometimes do. <laughs> so, you know, trying to inject a little uh, friendliness and levity was always important behind the scenes, talking to other guys. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that we all ended up generally as friends, but that's not always the case in primaries. Yeah, but there must have been some calculus going on back there, right? This person's going to take this percentage of my vote. This person's going to take that percentage of my vote. Maybe I can align with that person, attack this person. I mean, how much of that mental jujitsu was going on? Uh, it's constant. It's constant. Um, you know, I, I had the most rural area, and so I had to have the farm vote, and it had to show up. And so, well, I don't think they they challenged my right to that constituency, what they wanted to do is overwhelm it with the suburban voters in Atlanta and ultimately were able to do, by the way, because um, so much of the function was just who would show up. And um, I had a big military district, and so I, I did well with the military-type voters. But then, you know, you get into uh, – Paul Brown, for example, congressman, um, was on the NRA board, I believe, and really uh, at one point he was raffling off some sort of a gun. But I have a good pro-gun voting record. But, um, you know, people just – the bar just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. You know, I know you love me, but how much do you love me? Because this guy loves me more. And and, and you have to do that. And some of the the questions, you find yourself fighting over the primary base activist voters – but then when you step back, their influence doesn't necessarily go all over their state. It, the, the, their influence might just be in that room of 30 voters who are regular activist Republicans. And well, let's, let's, what was the most ridiculous thing you had to do to win over those primary voters? Um, I'd say, you know, you just have to be there. You have to keep That's going the, over. You must have but had did, you, to, yeah. did you feel yourself taking a position or saying something that was maybe more extreme than you would have normally? If in, you were... in the Republican primary, yeah. you could not use the word bipartisan. And um, to give you an example, during the primary, Saxby Chamless, the retiring senator, was playing golf with President Obama. He got a hole in one. 
everybody said, well, it's a good thing he's retiring. And what the heck is he doing wasting our time playing golf? And why is he playing golf with that horrible Barack Obama? You know, now, to argue, said, well, you know, I kind of think it's a good thing for my senator to be hanging out with the president because, you know, life is networking. And if you can get something done on the 18th green and maybe Saxby was working on one of our military installations. But, you know, people don't want to hear that kind of rational discussion. It, um, certain things you could not and, – and I know it's the same in any primary, uh, but uh, criticizing the president was always a good move politically, criticizing Obamacare. Um, one time, for example, I said, you know, if there are things that are good in Obamacare, then we should look at it. A lot of conservatives say, no, just step back and let this thing fall to pieces on its own. But I, I don't think that's always the responsible thing to do. Well, I had an ad immediately up against me within 48 hours saying that I was pro-Obamacare, which, you know, I mean, I voted against Obamacare 41 times. But then I suddenly I was on trial. One of the shows I've always liked to do over the years was the, is the Bill Maher show, Real Time. And, and I, you know, I like Bill. I like the show. And I think it's important for Republicans to go out there and participate because it is not a Republican stronghold. I hear Jack Kingston saying that Barack Obama wouldn't wear an American flag lapel pin. But I don't see Jack wearing one tonight. <laughs> What is it, Jack? Do you hate America? <laughs> your, your staff made me take it off. Well, you don't want to dare touch it because there's no way. You know, the only thing, uh, one of the consultants said, the only thing you could do on that show is get in a real knockdown drag out with Bill Maher. That would help you. Otherwise, don't touch it. And, and I do lament the fact that in America today, having a intelligent conversation with opposition is so difficult because of the your own base or the other party. Did you feel yourself changing in any way or saying things that maybe later like, wow, I went to that extreme or I couldn't, can't believe I would say that? I, I, I think it's – no, I think it's just that you feel like you can only say about 60 percent of what you want to say and that everything you say has to be thought through carefully and, um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's tough. Like one time my mother who just turned 90 – um, very hard of hearing. It was after a debate, and the tracker was following me around, just waiting for me to slip up after the debate. And she turns around and says, oh, is this a friend of yours? I said, no, Mom. Works for the wrong team. He wants to take a picture? <laughs> and I said, no, Mom. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a picture. And so we actually posed and for this tracker because, you know, she didn't – but, but normal people – don't understand how cutthroat the world of politics has become because of the emergence of technology and outside groups. If you look back at it, what was the most memorable moment for you on that campaign? Um, you know, the, there were a lot of memorable moments. There are just, you know, so many one. good people that you meet. And, oh, it's um, a generic politics. I, 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 I know. And, and I, I, I can say, you know, there were some great moments, certain endorsements that may have come our way. Herschel and certain Walker. people, uh-huh. Herschel Walker doing a great George ad for us. That's why I want my friend Jack Kingston carrying the ball for us in Washington. Jack is one of us. How'd that happen? Um, well, um, I play on the congressional football team. <laughs> 
I didn't know that. Raises money for the children of slain police officers. It's bipartisan. It's all done after hours. I have to qualify all that. <laughs> um, but it's a good charity event. And we play against these young, studly police officers who were beating the heck out of us. And we said, okay, guys, we're going to change the rules. We started drafting pro players. So we have Herschel Walker on the team. Come on. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. We, um Roger Goodell did the coin toss one year, but we got Ken Harvey, who was a all, three-time All-American for the Redskins. We had uh, John Booty played for uh, Philadelphia. They're our coaches. And then Heath Schuler, who was a quarterback for the Redskins, a member of Congress, and John Runyon. You know, um, so we started had, – we had to seed our team with some pros, and Herschel <laughs> and I got to know each other. And he's also very interested in physical fitness and uh, children's nutrition, and, and I've been involved in that as well. So uh, and he's just as – there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wonderful guy. And in Georgia, Herschel Walker could run for governor tomorrow, and he, he, he would clear the deck. Yeah. He could declare himself a Republicrat, <laughs> and he would have the endorsement of both parties. So you call him up, you say, Herschel, it's Congressman Kingston, need your help. And he says, sure. That's just literally how it happens? Yes, somewhat. And, you That's know— awesome. Um, but but you're asking everybody for their help. And another celebrity friend of mine is Johnny Rivers. You know, the the, the artist wrote the song "Secret Agent Man" long oh, yeah. before, long before either one of you were born. But he said he would do something. He's pretty old. Um, but we we were unable to we were unable to utilize that. But you, you reach out to anybody that you can. What was the what was like the uh, gold standard endorsement that everyone wanted and was competing over? I don't know that they were competing over it, but, you know, Ted Cruz or Mike Lee's names in the Republican primary, they particularly during the shutdown, you know, had one of them endorse somebody, that would have given a lot of clarity to the the, the primary voters. One endorsement that struck me was the Chamber of Commerce. Um, they, I mean, it was, it's been reported in the Post that they had this really bad meeting with now Senator Perdue. And they basically ended it after like a minute because it went so horribly. Did you know of these things happening in real time? We, we had heard some things, um, but my relationship with the chamber was always very yeah. good. And so we felt like we had a good shot at that endorsement. And if their meeting went bad, it worked for us. <laughs> uh, I think he may have felt like as the business candidate, he yeah. had that. But – you know, sometimes running a business and understanding politics can be a, two different. Yeah, things. I'm, not, I'm not trying to get you to badmouth him. I'm just sort of curious yeah. how that ner- how that news percolates. You know, you get lots of rumors and lots of people call you, but we, we did hear that that 
helped our opportunity. And the chamber, com- the chamber endorsement was very, very helpful. Yeah. Now, interestingly, he actually used the endorsement of the chamber to accuse me of being pro-amnesty. And in the Republican primary, you don't support Obamacare, you don't support gun control, and you're not pro-amnesty. And uh, they, in the home stretch, ran an ad that said we were. And it, that ad could have been the difference. Um, it was totally um, a fabrication. Of course. And um, but, but that's amazing because he had actually actively sought out the chamber's endorsement would have loved yes. to have run on it. And, and so did a couple of the other candidates as yeah. well. But, you know... In a primary, you're all going after a limited number of apples in a tree, and yeah. sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. But when, when when that ad came up, how did you not flip out and, like, punch a wall? <laughs> well, it, what happened, um, the ad placement deadline, I think, is on a Friday at 4 o'clock, and they put that ad up there about 3.50, and we could not react to it. And then what happens when you see somebody's attack ad, you, you have the, the big debate internally. Do you react? Do you ignore? Do you overpower it with a, more, uh, a buy that's more positive? And do you have equal rating points, but yours are positive and his are negative? One thing I learned from this campaign is negative ads work. And when most of the people say, I'm sick and tired of them, they just don't have the political stomach. The activists who show up in primaries they have the political stomach and so I I think negative ads are used because they do work and even as a seasoned politician I was amazed about how they move the needle After a five-way primary fight, no single candidate got 50% of the vote, meaning that the top two had to run against each other and so that May, Jack Kingston had to start the process all over again. This time, squaring off against Purdue and his manly jawline. You go into a runoff. Um, you know you're going to have to go against uh, Purdue, uh, and it's going to be a while. What's that first meeting like, the uh, night of the first vote, when you realize, okay, we have more campaigning to do? And do you actually contemplate changing strategy, and if so, how? Well, you are excited to be there, even though you're, you know, on paper you should be tired. You you really are exhilarated, and um, people start, you know, it's easier in a a race with eight people. We got a lot of I I'm not really sure. I'm going to wait, um, and so you with eight people it's so hard, but with two, everything's defined a lot better. And then people started picking or choosing, and so that gave us a lot more clarity. Uh, you know, you, you start looking at, well, where are our, what are his specific vulnerabilities and what are our strengths? Where is he going to be hitting us? And, you know, you, you, you want to get back up on the air as fast as possible. One of the dark days of the campaign was we had our April 1st filings. And we had raised money, and we were, uh, we were either on top or certainly as competitive as everyone else. Um, and his super PAC had... No money in it on the filing, but six days later, purchased a million dollars worth of attack ads. And that was very disturbing because, you know, if, when you're raising money check by check, the old-fashioned way through phone calls and barbecues and other type fundraising, um, you can't get a million dollars in a six-day period. But if you're a self-funder, you can. So someone comes in and says, Congressman, hate to break the news to you, but... 
this super PAC just put up a million dollars in ads and they had zero money six days ago. Yes. And you're jaw hits the floor obviously yes and and you're just how, how are we going to compete with that because what what you want to find out is you know with a normal candidate you can sort of predict where they're going to be on high end this this person's going to raise three million they might raise five but it'll be a five million dollar challenge with a self-funder you don't know where that right. ceiling is what would you say was the probability you were given to win when the runoff began we had a 10-point lead uh right off the bat but um you know we knew that would fade because there's just this bump and and i was um you might say the natural republican because i had been a party activist and i had shown up at lots of precinct meetings and stuffed a lot of envelopes for other candidates and put up a lot of yard signs for other candidates over the years and stuffed a lot of envelopes mean you know letters for brochures and not cash yeah i was i don't have any cash to stuff anybody's envelope there's a difference between an envelope and a pocket. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> but so I was the known quantity, and we felt like, okay, somebody with a proven track record, you know, I have an A-plus with NRA, 100% with the National Federation of Independent Businesses, 100% pro-life. A known candidate who's been in the pressure cooker of Washington, D.C., with all the criticism that goes with it, that's a that's a sure bet than somebody who you don't really know who's promising you things. But you know, with the anti-Washington mood, what it was, that wasn't enough. Is there one thing that you regret doing, like a, a, either an attack you made or an appearance you made, or something you did that you now look back and say maybe I shouldn't have done that? Uh, running a campaign is not easy and it's not perfect. It's not a yeah. But here's you, the action book. You're I saying mean, you're saying here you oh, do I'm the exact give, same give thing. Give you an again. example. Sure. You and I have seen each other around Washington, around town, um, but I don't really know you. That you know, I don't know all your personal. That stories. changes after today. <laughs> yes, it does. I'm going to give you my number. Thank you. Um, now, Jason, not sure yet. You know, <laughs> but, but I would not give. So, so, so a lot of times, as a candidate, particularly on a statewide race, people are coming up to you right and left. Hey, can I take my picture with you? I bet you, I bet you, thirty people a day have their picture taken with you. You never know who they are, what their black background is. And what you want is a picture of Kingston with some unsavory character. And, and that's one of the tricks of a campaign. You don't know who's coming up to you at any given time and, and trying to stir up. We, we, we had one thing where uh, we were in Cobb County up on a stage, and it was towards the end. I said, all right, I want to ask my family to come up on stage. And, you know, while I'm with you, I want, I want some of the other folks to come up. And we just wanted to have this, you know, kind of good – Unity. Well, this guy comes up. I don't know who the heck he is. And he insists on stand, standing next to me. And he's, you know, he's a well-meaning guy. I don't know. It turns out he was. But you, you just, okay, he's a plant. He's up to no good. He, you know, who it, was it, he? He turned out to be just some, you know, local guy who loved to have his picture taken with anybody <laughs> he felt was, a, you know, important. Talk to us about um, the debates. They seem to be total you know, crapshoots. You don't know how much time you're going to get. You try to make a point. You don't know if you're going to be able to make it. When you went into a debate, did you have a line that you know you wanted to use? You tried to. The number one thing you want to do is not make the front page. Um, you don't want the man bites dog story, and that's what you have to do. So if you don't win the debate, that it doesn't matter. You just don't want to say something stupid that's going to be used against you. And we had these... Uh, I think we had like 15 debates. Um, 
you know, at first you could have notes, and then you couldn't have notes, and then some of them you could and some of them you couldn't. But, you know, you get your, your lines, and you sort of know where the questions are going to be going, but you never know. For example, um, we had an opportunity in one of the late-stage debates to ask each other a question, and Phil Gingrich, congressman from Marietta, and I have always been pretty good friends, you know, even through this. He decides to level his question at me. <laughs> and I thought, well, I mean, we're not allies. I understand that. But I didn't know he was going to take a What was the question? Me. Well, I have a little house on Tybee Island. It, it, it's, not, it's not on the beach. But I was accused – this is how absurd things are. I was accused of supporting beach renourishment, and it was going to benefit me financially. <laughs> The Beach Renourishment Project was a Corps of Engineers authorization from 1965. I was nine years old. I was in fourth grade. <laughs> I did not come up with that legislation in the fourth grade. And, and so the, I don't know. You're thinking of running for president in the seventh grade. Well, that's true. <laughs> so, but, you know, the, the charge was absurd. But anything's game in politics, and so he he asked you about this specific. Yeah, aren't you trying to make money on it's? And 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 the the crazy thing is, in a town that has three hundred thousand dollar beach houses, mine's worth about seventy five thousand dollars or a hundred. I don't know what, but it's it's a you know. So after after this is all done backstage, you're like Phil, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, man? Well, you can swear on this program, by the way. I, well, um, I I probably ask him something (laughs) (laughs) she is here to settle into places that have kept running long and hard running perfect these are the places Um, at what point did you know on that day that you were going to lose uh, it was that night, about 10 p.m., and what happened, and it was a little surreal. We were in a ballroom, about 500 people and everybody. And, and you know, we had good numbers going into it. It, it was nip and tuck, but conventional thinking was we were going to win by about 1% or 2%. And, uh, I mean, we, we had a lot of people there who were fair-weather friends who showed up that night for a reason because they thought we were going to win. And so we have a huge... Uh, overhead screen with the county by county breakdown, and have then we had a war room, and in the war room, you know, every bit's the typical. Everybody's back there looking at every single vote as it comes in, and so people were with me in the room. God, let's have our picture taken. This feels so good, and all that. And we were up by about fifty-one percent, but I asked my staffer to slow down the screen so I could follow it a little bit. So. You know, I'm I'm in there. People are people are totally exhilarated, and I started looking at that screen, and I realized that the big big precincts in the Atlanta area had not shown up, and the 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 ones that had the trend wasn't a good one, so I knew we were in trouble, and so I kind of extracted myself from the room, which even though it was probably a 15 yard walk, it took 30 minutes because everybody keeps interrupting <laughs> you and really congratulating you. And so I said to my consultant, um, Jeff Rose, Jeff, I, you know, it's, it doesn't look good. And uh, he said, I know you want me to explain it to you. And I said, no, I've been in this game a long time. One thing I know how to do is read numbers, and I, I think it's over with. And he said, yeah, it's over. And, and at that point, no one else knew. And I said, well, look, I, you know, a couple of things I want to do. Number one, I don't want anybody in that room hearing it on the media. I want them to know it from me. Because I think just I just felt that way. Number two, I want to congratulate David Perdue because I don't want, you know, I just 
want to take the high road. I, I actually don't think anybody had ever congratulated me that I've run against. And I, and I felt like long ago, you know, if this, if I'm in this situation, I'm going to congratulate the guy and I'm going to endorse him and I'm going to get those boxes checked while they're still, you know, just to go ahead and do Was it. Was this your first loss? Um, actually, in seventh grade. Okay, first. Uh, I, no, wait. you got to have the rant against Susan Sims. Oh, 15 no, boys. No, not and, Susan. Yeah, Susan. She's tough. The beautiful Susan Sims, 15 boys and uh, 16 girls in seventh grade. And even then, voting around gen, uh, gender. And uh, actually. She went negative early, though. So, no, yeah. Well, she went uh, very positive oh. early. <laughs> but um, my best friend, Doug Denny, was actually dating her as you date in seventh grade. And I actually had miscounted. I, I thought he was a swing vote, but it, there were more girls than I thought. Um, the. Uh, the reality was though that that yeah that was my first loss, but I did decide years and years ago. Yeah, but you've, I'm just curious because you've never you haven't felt the emotions of a loss, not in, not since seventh grade at least. So was that like a pit in your stomach? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean it, it's it's devastating. But you you do know. I mean you got to look at it philosophically from the very very beginning that I'm going to make this race and I might lose. And if I lose, I will never be chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the House. I'll never go on a, a you know another trip to see the troops in Afghanistan. I'll never be able to host a town meeting. You know, you 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 put all that up on you know for risk. But you know, it's part of the process. It makes the system better for everybody. We have to take risk instead of just incumbents that get really you know fat, dumb, and happy. And yet, I also knew that if I did lose, I didn't want to be you know, crappy about it. I just felt like it was real important to go ahead and take the high road, take your medicine like a man and move on and uh, congratulate the guy. Because he hit me hard, but I hit him hard too. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we go to the war room and that's where the inner circle of my closest family and friend, and I mean like longtime high school buddies. And and that's another thing about it. So many people came out of the woodwork who weren't political but they knew me from junior high, and they'd been with me from since my first race and so forth. And so a lot of them were in the war room. And then a lot of other people came in there, and, you know, I said, okay, look, I'm, this is really one of the worst moments, certainly the worst moment in my political life and probably in my top ten in my life life. And so I got to have this intimate discussion in front of what's become a growing audience, but um, – you know, and Senator Mac Mattingly was in there, and um, he said, why don't you wait another 30 minutes? You never know what these numbers are going to do. And so we decided to wait 30 minutes, but I never left the war room after that because I just I didn't want to go back out and face the audience without knowing. So we, we went ahead and, you know, called David. I think I caught him by surprise. <laughs> I'm not sure. He, uh, he, he didn't expect it, it, maybe the call that early, maybe uh, not. Um, and uh, so... But, you know, when I look back and probably the really worst moment, um, you know, it's just hard looking at your wife, looking at your children. And my son, Jim, who had been involved in the campaign from the very beginning, he was sitting in the back of the room. and they had, It was a classroom, had a desk, and he had his head down. And oh, it was just so hard for me to look at him. I felt like I've let these people down. Mm-hmm. I really have. And, you know, then went out to the audience and, you know, this big crowd and, lots of cameras, and you have to basically tell everybody what I worked for for 18 years, what I put my 22-year career at risk for, it did not happen. And yet, I have to thank you for the opportunity of serving, 
because it's been an honor and uh, did a lot of great things. And if I don't ever serve an office again, I've had my bite of the apple and I can't complain. Mm. And then, you know, that, that, that was it. And you walk off into the, the dustbin of oblivion and you don't worry about it. <laughs> and you end up on the Huffington Post. And, 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 <laughs> yeah, and you, and you say, you know, if I could just get on the HuffPost staff, I'll be cool. <laughs> Go back here to the room. yoga room. Yeah. I, I need it. That was former Congressman Jack Kingston on his 2014 campaign for the Senate seat in Georgia. Now, unfortunately, some bad news. Jack Kingston has not lived up to his promise to continue emailing me. I'm not bitter or anything. I won't hold it against him. I really won't. Big thanks, as always, to Christine Canetta, our fearless editor on this podcast. It wouldn't be the same without her. As always, you can check out Candidate Confessional on both iTunes and on the HuffingtonPost.com. Please go there, subscribe, rate, review the podcast. I don't even care if they're bad reviews, just review it. Tune in next week when we interview one Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, on his run for the White House in 2012. You're not going to want to miss that episode. Till then, happy trails. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.